That was my first depiction of manhood. Um, as scary as that is. Growing up, I loved professional wrestling and specifically loved Hulk Hogan. There are pictures of me as a bird-chested four- and five-year-old running around in yellow briefs, uh, just tearing my T-shirts in two. Um, I had to cut them first. I wasn't that strong. Hulk Hogan was this larger-than-life character for me. And I remember that growing up, I thought I want to be just like Hulk Hogan and these wrestlers that I watched every Saturday morning, Jake the Snake Roberts and the Big Boss Man and Hacksaw Jim Duggan and the Ultimate Warrior. And I remember these men were hulking, towering figures. And they were fearless. And they were aggressive. And I wanted to be just like these professional wrestlers. That, in my mind, was what a man was and what he stood for. Recently, I've started to watch some documentaries about these guys 20, 30 years later from when I watched them as a kid. And it's striking to me now to watch these larger-than-life figures at that time in my life. They have become old, broken men. Almost all of them. If you watch any of these documentaries, you'll see that they have become old, broken-down men. Their bodies have betrayed them. Many professional wrestlers die very young from drug overdoses, from steroid abuse. Oftentimes when you see them later in their life, in their 50s, in their 60s, they're struggling with addiction, they've lost money, they've lost families, and they're still clinging to this former glory that they used to have. There's a great film, I don't necessarily know if I recommend it, but it was a great film by Darren Aronofsky called The Wrestler, and it just gives this incredible picture of what it looks like for one of these guys who had all of this glory after the crowd stops cheering. And almost to a T, every time I watch kind of the recap of these men's lives, as they're old, as they're broken down, as their bodies and their families have left, as the money's gone away, I hear them say almost to a T, when I couldn't wrestle anymore, I didn't know who I was. There is a real danger in tying our identity to what we do. There's a real danger in tying our identity into what we do. Because when we can no longer do it, we don't know who we are. We don't have an identity. And this is a strong temptation specifically for men. This is a strong temptation for men. For us as men to believe ultimately that we are what we do. But this isn't the way that scriptures talk about men. This isn't the way that God talks about men. You see, in the scriptures, God is much more concerned about who a man is than what a man does. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Last week, as we started this Pink and Blue series, Charlie talked about that men and women were made in the image of God, that you and I were created as image bearers. That means as men, we carry the imago Dei, the image of God. It's imprinted on our souls. And we were created in God's image to reflect God's image back into creation. You and I are simply designed to be mirrors of God's glory back into creation. That all of creation would be able to look on humankind, man, and know more about who God is and what he desires. After God imprints his image on man, he sends him to work. In Genesis 2, 15, 
In Genesis 2.15, we see that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Notice, he doesn't give man a job. He doesn't give him a responsibility until after he's imprinted the Imago Dei on his soul. You see, man's doing was originally designed to be an outworking of his being. Your doing as a man was originally designed to be an outworking of your being. You were created to reflect God's image through his being and his doing. And God gives Adam the responsibility of working and keeping the garden so that God's glory would shine through Adam's doing. But you see, sin in Genesis 3, when it enters into the Bible, when it enters into history, sin reverses this original intention. Now, as men, we seek to find our being through our doing. It's a little bit confusing. Let me, let me break it for you this way. The original intention was that what we do is determined by who we are. The original intention is that what we do is determined by who we are. But our fallen, sinful reality today is that most of us sit here and who we are is determined by what we do. And our culture has done everything to pump this lie further into us because we are a culture that is all about production. You are what you produce. And men, that is a sinful lie. It wasn't the way that God designed us to be. He designed for our doing to come from our being. You see, manhood is defined by who a man is, not by what a man does. Manhood is defined by who a man is, not by what a man does. Doing will always follow being. Doing will always follow being. If we're, but it doesn't necessarily work the other way around. If we're more focused on who we're going to be, what we do will come very naturally to us. So if we're going to focus on the things that we need to be as men, are there specific things that a man needs to be? I think that there are. So I want to walk through four with you this morning. Things that a man needs to be the man that God created him to be. Now, these um, aren't specific to men. By that, I mean that women, there are things in here that you can learn and there are things that you can probably apply, but they are particular to men. They're not men specific, but they're men particular. Each man in here, these are things that we need in order to be who God has designed us to be. And then ultimately to do what God's called us to do. The first thing a man needs is a man needs a savior. A man needs a savior. At the root of man's failure to be who he is supposed to be is his sin nature. In Genesis 3, sin fractures God's good design for man. And it says that today, sin still permeates. From the time that we are born as men, we are born in sin. It is a soul sickness that infects everything that we are and everything that we do. And if we only treat the symptoms of sinfulness and not the root cause of our sin nature, we will never reverse the curse of sin. So a couple weeks ago, uh, my wife, or a couple months ago, my wife needed new tires. And when I, took her, when I took her car to get new tires, what I found out is that her car was misaligned. Now, I have the option there to just put tires on it and come back several months later needing new tires again. 
Or I have the option to fix the actual problem, which is the alignment of the car. I can address the symptoms, but if I just address the symptoms and not the root cause, I'm going to be right back where I was several months later. That's why we don't treat lung cancer with cough syrup, right? Like it might address the symptoms, but it's not going to address the cause. As men, we are oftentimes very guilty of simply addressing the symptoms of our sin, but not ever getting to our sin nature. And if we're ever going to address our sin nature, we realize that we have to have a savior. The problem with men, the problem with me as a man is not some external force. It's not some external force. It's an internal flaw. And it's my sin nature. So as much as we want to say that our problems as men are due to our daddy issues or due to our wife or due to our boss. No, 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 no. The biggest problem with you as a man is you. Because we're all born with an internal flaw, sin nature, and we are desperately in need of a savior. In Romans 5, 18 and 19, Paul writes this. Therefore, as, ju- as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Jesus and Jesus alone offers us the cure for what is enslaved sin, was enslaved men since the fall. Jesus and Jesus alone. Because he lived as a man for men. Hebrews 4 says that he was tempted just like you and I are. Yet he was without sin. And that he paid my penalty on the cross for the judgment that I incurred and that I deserved. And that he rose to life, defeating death and sin. And that he now offers to restore the image of God in me, in you, that was lost at the fall. The first thing we need as a man, if we're going to be who God called us to be, is to put our manhood on Jesus and rest, not in what we think we can do for God, but in what Jesus has already done for you. Man needs a Savior. Second thing a man needs, a man needs an identity. A man needs an identity. Every man at some point in his life has to ask the question, who am I? Who am I? And this is a question of identity. And I think there are often two large determining factors to our identity. And they're both misplaced. The first, I think, is who do others say that I am? We find our identity in who do other people say that I am? The second is who do I think that I am? If we find our identity in what other people say about us, see, that's not your identity. That's your reputation. And your reputation bears no weight on your salvation. Your reputation bears no weight on your salvation. So what others think of you, who they think that you are, is not your identity. It's just your reputation. Rappers love this. You ever heard a rapper say, only God can judge me? People say that all the time. Not just rappers. They just get it tattooed on them. Only God can judge me. What's that idea? It's only God knows my heart. And it's well-intentioned, 
But what we've done as a culture is we've carried that out. We said, no, 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 you can't judge my actions. I can do what I want because only God can judge me. It's not true. It is true that only God judges the heart. As another human being, I can't look at you and tell you what's inside your heart. Only God can do that. But I can judge what's in your heart by your actions a lot of times. Because the Bible tells us that out of the heart, the man speaks. And it flows out from our heart. Your reputation, what others think of you, bears no weight on your salvation. It's important. So I don't mean that you should build this reputation that you're this awful person. It's important. But it's not ultimate. So then what we try to do is we say, well, my reputation is what I think of myself. And this is the cry of our culture. Look deep within your heart to find who you really are. That's not your true identity. That's your perceived identity. And the problem with your perceived identity is that you lie to yourself more than anybody else. You do. I do. You know who lies to me more than anybody else in my life? Me. A couple weeks ago, uh, I had the opportunity to travel and speak. And I was speaking on a Friday night and a Saturday night. And Friday night, I got up and I preached this message. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I knocked it out of the park. Like, it was awesome. And, like, I walked off stage and was like, okay, where's the line to shake hands? Like, let's, let's do this thing. Follow me on Twitter, kids. Like, I, I felt like this was the best. The next night, I got up on stage, preached, got off stage, sat down, put my head in my hands, and I said, don't ever do that again. And I didn't mean preach that message. I meant preach ever. Like, ever. Don't ever do that again. Go find something else to do. Now, if my identity is tied to what I think of myself, I'm on this roller coaster ride, man, where one night I'm the best in the world and the next night I'm the scum of the earth. You see, because you lie to yourself more than anybody else. Your perceived identity is just this patchwork quilt of our reputation, our insecurities, our weaknesses, our strengths. And we put all of these things together and try to come up with some idea of who we are. But the problem is we're listening to something that lies to us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we're not going to find our identity in what others say of us. That's your reputation. You're not going to find your identity in what you think of you because that's just your perceived identity. You lie to yourself. The only way that we find our identity as men is what God declares you to be. That's where we find our identity. In what God has declared you to be. Second Corinthians one twenty says in him, meaning Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. You know what that means as a man? It means as a man, when I tie my identity, not to what I do, but to what Jesus has done, all of the promises of God to me are yes and amen. That's an identity. That's a rock that I can stand on in moments when I think that I'm too high or moments where I'm feeling too low. I know it doesn't matter what you've done, David. What matters is what Christ has done on your behalf. His identity is now your identity. When God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees Jesus, the perfect savior. And what that does as a man is it emboldens me to live a life of courage, of faith, of obedience, Because my identity is no longer tied to who I think I am or what others think of me or what I do. My identity is tied to Jesus and he never, ever, ever fails. Man needs an identity. Man needs a vision. A man needs a vision. 
Ultimately, every man must ask the question, what will my life be about? And this is a question of destiny. It's a question of destiny. Ultimately, what person or thing will govern the course of my life? And where will the vision of my life come from? And I think there's two options. Number one is a terrible option. That means that your destiny and that your vision comes from you. And this is the call of modern humanism. There's a poem, uh, by, uh, it's called Invictus, a very famous poem called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. And he finishes the poem by saying, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And as men, we buy into this. Yes, I am. I'm the captain of my fate. I. Me. I'm going to set the course for my life. But this vision, if you set this vision for your life, will ultimately be dangerous and it's short-sighted. Why? It's short-sighted because you're finite. As I get older, the more I begin to realize that life is very short and that there is coming a day when I will be no more. So if I set the vision in the course of my life, my vision and course of my life dies with me. So at most, I get, what, 90 years? So it's short-sighted. It's dangerous. Why? Because ultimately what I'm doing by setting the course for my life is pursuing my own glory. You know what glory means? Glory means weightiness. And if you remember back to Genesis 1, that we were created to be glory reflectors, not glory assumers. So when I set the course of my life, what I do is assume the glory that I was made to reflect. And what's going to happen is that glory, that weight that I was not designed to carry will ultimately crush me. As a man, I will be crushed in the pursuit of my own glory because I wasn't made to assume glory. I was made to reflect it and give it back to the only one who can assume the glory of our worship and the glory of our lives. So if I set the vision and I set the course for my life, it's short-sighted and it's dangerous. But if I allow God to set the course of my life, if I allow God to set the course of my life, it is no longer short-sighted and dangerous. No, 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 no. It is satisfying and eternal. In Proverbs 16, 9, it says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So when we submit the vision we have for our lives to the vision God has for our lives, we now have a satisfying and eternal vision. This vision acknowledges the Lord as the Lord of our lives. He's the Lord of your life, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So why not get on board? That's why Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 1 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is simply ceding to God what is rightfully his. It is coming underneath him, humbling ourselves and saying, you are God, I am not. And Proverbs says that when we get to that point, that's the beginning of wisdom. This is tough for men. This is hard for me, particularly because of the humility necessary to entrust our destiny to someone else other than ourselves. I, I don't even like to let my wife drive. You know? It's like, I'm in the car. I, I'm in control. I want to drive. I want to be in control of everything in my life. And, and what I've found particularly condemning is the more and more I seek to be in control of my life, the more and more out of control my life becomes. 
But the more I take God at his word, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the more and more I begin to cede control and say, you're God, I'm not. Tell me what to do. Tell me where to go. I begin to start seeing the things in my life fall into place. And even when they don't, I have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Because I know that he is good and does good always. Man needs a vision. Man needs a vision. Who's setting the vision for your life? You? Short-sighted, man. That's dangerous. The Lord. Because then we find joy. And that vision outlasts just this temporal life that we're living. And into eternity. Man needs a vision. Finally, a man needs a responsibility. Every man must ask the question, what am I going to do? And this is a question of purpose. It's a question of purpose. Genesis 2.15, God imprints his image on Adam. This is who you're going to be. And then he takes him and he puts him in the garden and says, this is what you're going to do. And then later, we'll talk about next week, he gives him a wife. This is who is going to help you accomplish this. Notice, men, God gives Adam a job before he gives him a wife. Single men, that's important. You were created for responsibility. Responsibility. Every man needs responsibility. Mark Driscoll says that men are like trucks. They drive better with a load. You need responsibility. You need something. A sense of purpose. Notice what God does in Genesis 3 that's so hard on men. When we sin and rebel, when Adam sins, rebels against God, when God brings up the curse of Adam, what he does is the curse for his sin strikes directly at the heart of what it means to be a man. He says, I've put you in the garden to work it and to keep it, but now it's not going to come easy to you. You're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to toil because the ground is going to be hard and it's going to be infertile and it's not going to give up easily what you want from it. Notice that the ground that man was designed to work rebels against him just as man has rebelled against the creator he was designed to serve. Strikes directly at the heart of what it means to be a man. And now, because of sinfulness, instead of being responsibility assumers, we have become increasingly responsibility abdicators. Instead of assuming responsibility that God created us for, we have simply begun to shuff off as much responsibility as we can. But you see, men need responsibility for their purpose. Our vision for our lives needs direction, and responsibility gives us direction. So where should men seek responsibility? Where should men seek responsibility? I think there's three main places. Not the only places, but I think there are three main places. Number one, they should seek responsibility in the church. A man should seek to serve others by serving his church. Any adult male can attend a church, but it takes a man to serve the church. God has given us the church, and in the Bible, Jesus calls it his bride. And he's now given us the responsibility as men to care for his bride. When I travel, I know that there are men in my neighborhood who, if I need them, if there's an emergency, if my wife needs help, they will go. And I entrust those men as I'm away to care for my wife. In much the same way, Jesus, when he ascended, entrusted faithful men to his bride, the church. So let's stop sleeping on the call to serve the church, men. It is our responsibility to 
serve the church. Secondly, it's your responsibility to serve in the workplace. It's your responsibility to serve in the workplace. It is. Um, Darren Patrick says in a really good book called The Dude's Guide to Manhood, which is out on the table, I would suggest that you buy two copies, one for you and one to give away to a guy that you know in your life. He says there's two types of men. There are men who work for the weekend and there are men who work through the weekend. And both of them are ultimately flawed because one of them undervalues the work that they do and the other overvalues it. We have to learn to love our work well. Take ownership of your vocation. Even if it's not your career, even if it's not what you're ultimately going to be doing, take ownership of the vocation of the place that God has put you in. Ask for responsibility. If you don't love what you do, find a way to love it or quit and do something that you love. That's the call of a responsible man. Learn to love your work well by not overvaluing it and not holding it in contempt. Take responsibility for the workplace. And third, take responsibility in your home. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because the next two weeks or or in the next part of the series, we're going to talk about husbands. We're going to talk about fathers and man's responsibility inside the home. But know that God has called men to lead the home. This is not a call to rule with an iron fist, but it is a call to be the loving servant leader of your wife and kids. Single men, don't think that just because you're single or you're not yet married that you don't have a responsibility in the home. The two greatest proponents of marriage in the Bible were both single men, Jesus and Paul. Get around men who are fathers. Get around men who are husbands. Support them. Learn from them. Pray for them. Be in relationship with them. Be a proponent of a man's responsibility in the home, even if you are not the head of your household right now. Man needs responsibility because manhood is defined by who a man is, not by what a man does. Your doing will always follow your being. A man needs a savior. He needs an identity. He needs a vision. And he needs a responsibility. And ultimately, men Here's the good news. Jesus provides you with all four. Jesus provides you with a savior. He gives you an identity. He gives you a vision for your life. And he gives you responsibility. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor, said, Nothing is more dangerous than a man who is bored and has no idea who he is, what he should do, or how he should do it. I tend to agree with that. So let me say this in closing. Men, I address you this morning as men because I think sometimes it's good for us to be addressed as men. My tone is a little bit heavy. It's a little bit harsh. And that's okay because I know that sometimes I need somebody to kick me in the butt because my default is to be lazy and my default is to not do these things and to abdicate responsibility and to tie my being to my doing. So sometimes I need somebody to kind of hit me like a punch in the face so that I can see the beauty of who Jesus has designed us to be and begin to walk in what that means. I'm going to talk about biblical womanhood next week. You will notice that my tone will be much softer. Ladies are like, my gosh, please don't let him yell at me next week. (laughs) Men, we need you. We need men. We need fathers, we need husbands, but desperately 
We need men. And not just any man, but a man who has a savior. A man whose identity is rooted in that savior. A man who has a vision for his life and the life of those around him. And a man who takes that responsibility seriously. My prayer is that our church would be filled with these type of men. And I believe that if it is, our community will be changed for the glory of God, for our joy, and for the good of all of those who he has given us the responsibility to serve. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. And God, this was a hard message to preach because I fall short of so many of these things every single day. And so, I, God, I pray that um, my tone this morning would not come off as arrogant, that it would not come off as um, somebody who has already attained all of these things. But Jesus, that it would come off as urgent because you are urgently this morning calling men to be men. And so, God, I pray for the men in this room that this week, Father, we would find our identity in you. That we would be satisfied with the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus. You are our king. You are our mighty warrior. You are the one who fights for us. May we not think of you of anything less, God, than the ultimate example of manhood. So God, I pray for men this morning who are struggling with temptation, who've allowed Satan um, to deceive them into believing that they're not worthy, that they're not good enough to take up this challenge. Father, I pray that you would tell them, God, just in their souls this morning, that it's not about their worth, it's about your worth. And if they will cling to you in hope, in faith, and trust, God, you'll give them purpose, you'll give them meaning. You'll heal their lives. You'll heal their families. Pray that we would not be glory assumers, but glory reflectors. We would not be responsibility abdicators, but that we would assume the responsibility that you've called us to. For your great name and your renown, we pray these things. Amen.